Hey, it's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. Today, you're going to hear my conversation with Vincent Wu. He's the founder of CoderPad.io. It's a software tool that helps companies hire software engineers. Um, it's pretty cool. They, they could see real time on the screen, the interviewee writing code and rendering that code and all that cool technical stuff. But we don't get too technical in this interview. We're talking about how he came up with the idea after working at Amazon and Google and then hiring some people himself and running into trouble and discovering the pain point for himself, building the tool on the side, and then building a, an incredibly high revenue business with just him and three other employees. It's pretty impressive. So we talk about all that and everything that he's learned along the way from selling to enterprise, to figuring out your pricing, to showing a, a live demo before asking for uh, a credit card or, or a free trial and a whole lot in between. I'm going to get right into it. Here's my conversation with Vincent Wu of CoderPad. Enjoy. I'm talking to Vincent Wu. Vincent, how's it going? It's great. How are you? Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show today. So, why don't you introduce yourself and what you do and what you're kind of focused on these days? Sure. Uh, my name is Vincent. I run a self-funded software as a service company called CoderPad out on the West Coast in San Francisco. Nominally, we offer an interview tool for people who are hiring programmers. So large companies and small companies alike who hire a lot of software programmers in the Bay and the East Coast mostly pay for CoderPad in order to have a really high fidelity in-browser experience to sort of vet over the phone whether a programmer has a shot at making the on-site or whether they understand general programming concepts in general. Yeah, very cool. So, you know, we were talking a bit before this call. And as I said, you know, I, I know that there are some people in, in this audience who are technical, some are engineers, developers. But for those who aren't, I mean, my my general sense when I took a look at CoderPad, which looks really cool, like the cool thing that, that stuck out to me was this ability to live in the browser, not only have like a video call with someone like, like we're all used to, but actually it's like a, a split screen, like show a coding, like one side code, the other side rendering what you're coding. And I guess seeing that in real time in a two-way call. Am I understanding that correctly? You're understanding it absolutely correctly. And that was sort of our big, unique differentiator when we are getting started. Uh, most live interview tools at the time only really let you share code in real time, but didn't really let you just hit a run button and see what a particular snippet of code would actually do if you were to compile it and run it. So that was our contribution to the state of the art of programming, interviewing, and I think it's caught on pretty quickly on its own. There's now imitations, of course, but I think we managed to carve out a niche for ourselves by having that insight about what would make the process better. Yeah, very cool. So what does the company look like today? Are you the sole founder of it? Yeah, I'm. Um, for a long time, it was just me. Now we're up to four people total. We have a small cramped we work in San Francisco and a couple of developers and like another sort of general purpose jack-of-all-trades employee. Nice. So we're going to go back and, and get the story in just a minute, but I don't know how, how open you generally are about things like revenue and size, customers. Like, Can you give us a sense of, of size? Since I've already shared a general sense of size with indie hackers, I'll say uh, we make north of 2 million annual recurring revenue at this time. Very nice. I, I mean, that's one of the things that really jumped out to me was being at that level with just four employees. That's something that I, I don't want to kind of dig into, which is really impressive. Sure. But we'll, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> okay. Why don't we go back? So you're in the Bay Area now. Is, is that where you're from originally? 
Yeah, I'm from Milpitas, California, which you've never heard of, I'm sure. Nope, I haven't. Very cool. And so how did you, like growing up, like were you always into software and development and did you see that as like your path for a while? (laughs) That's actually really funny. No, I was really into video games, like really into video games and still am, honestly. I started programming to cheat at video games because I wanted to understand like what made them work. I never really thought about what my career would be until I was like sort of forced to, but you know, this is a moment on your college application where you have to pick a major. And my mom really wanted me to be a dentist because she thought all the programming jobs were just going to go to India, which is not untrue. A lot did, but even more were created. So I got lucky in defying her in that respect. But no, I mean, I never really had any sense of what my career would be and still don't, frankly. So I kind of just won the whole thing. That's what most of us are doing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know. Some people give the impression they have more plan. I try not to give it. You know what I found? Like, I love talking to other founders and, and also hearing their stories on other interviews. And when you hear them talk about what they've built up until now, it seems like everything went according to plan. <laughs> that is in 0% of cases, like, uh, true. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like they put these pieces together that all formed this cohesive thing. But it's so true. It's never like that. Everything I know in my experience has just been figure one thing out into the next, into the next. And all of a sudden like, oh, I guess I'm running a business now. Okay. I have talked to a lot of companies and startups in my day, both like as a matter of personal interest and as in the course of like selling them a piece of software. And there have been only a few companies that I thought were like, wow, this company is remarkably well organized where they like had everything on time and knew exactly what they wanted. And they're like, they had any plan at all like vanishingly rare and none of them start that way. I think it has to be beat into them eventually. Every startup, like every actual startup I've ever talked to is just been pure chaos on the inside, which is fine. It's actually totally okay. And you can still get rich off that. Yeah, it, it it has worked. So what was your first move as you started to grow up, college, post college? What was like your first kind of big position there or phase, if you will? Again, very little forethought or foresight in any of the things I've done. I graduated college right around, you know, 08 recession. So I felt pretty lucky to even just get a job. I only got one job offer. Uh, so I went to Seattle to work for Amazon and that sucked. And then from there, I was like, well, this is terrible. I should go to some other big company where people say it's good. So I went to Google and that sucked, but for totally different reasons. And then I started realizing that maybe it's me, you know, like if these are companies that people love working for, like something, something's not adding up here. So what sucked about those companies? Oh, I mean, come on. You read the New York <laughs> Times. Like I, we, we could, we could go into the laundry. I'll go fast. I mean, like Amazon is obviously brutal because they're, I, Amazon is at least honest. I would say they tell you how brutal it's going to be. And it's fucking brutal. You get a fucking desk made out of a door with splinters in it and nothing is free of a shit instant coffee and everyone hates each other and is constantly trying to sabotage everybody else. And nobody's actually really that good at their job. It's just they have the, they have the greatest product of all time. I, I haven't had much experience in like a big corporate setting, but you are blessed. I, I could absolutely imagine like the politics of it and the and working under these big bureaucracies. I guess I could get that. I did not expect like the working conditions to suck at Amazon or Google. At Google, they're totally great. At Amazon, they make a point of reminding you where Amazon came from, which is a garage where they made desks out of doors. It costs, you know about door desks? Has no one told you about door desks? I don't think so. 
Amazon is famous for making every employee use a desk that's literally made from a door or rather the, the core piece of wood that goes into a door. They slap some posts on that. They sand it a little bit and then that's your desk. <laughs> and it's a philosophical lesson because Jeff Bezos is weird and he's in and stuff like that. I, honestly, I actually think it's kind of charming. It's just terrible yeah. to work on. So you would literally get splinters sometimes just being at your desk. What about like the hustle of it? Like, is it like high pressure in terms of like you have to ship things at a crazy pace? Is it that sort of thing or? Uh, I mean, my belief is human beings like sort of self-select for a, like a general level of anxiety. So I think it depends a lot on your team. On my team, it looked like we would just, as a way of like trying to live the fiction of both being like, you know, high output Amazon employees and the reality that like no one there actually really wants to do that much work. You ended up with this thing where you'd spend like, I'd be like an hour long sprint burned down. I only know those words. I don't actually remember what that meaning means. I just like, it. Just, <laughs> right. I would get censured for falling asleep, like regularly. It was so boring. We would just sit there in a room and people would say two beans. I think that task is three beans. How many beans are we above or below the bean threshold? I don't even know what those mean anymore. I think that meant like hours or something. Like it was an absurd, it was like a Dilbert cartoon. I never thought that Dilbert was real until Amazon. Well, just the word censored kind of jumped out at me as a place where I don't ever want to be. <laughs> censured, censured, as in, as in this. Or censured, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't. But they tried that. to censor me too. It was very useful, I was saying, because I do a lot of local city politics now. Understanding how fragile people's egos can be about little things, I thought was really instructive. Because I would write emails to people and like other teams or something and be like, hey, uh, my name is Vincent, I need this thing. Like, can you do this thing for me? And then they would like forward that email to my boss and say, hey, you need to like rein your employee in or whatever. And then he would come to me. He's like, you can't write emails like this. I'm like, like what? Like, I actually thought that was a very polite email or whatever. And he'd be like, no, you got to Like, you just got to be really nice or whatever. He wouldn't say exactly what I said wrong or whatever. But like the understanding I gained was that like these people are very afraid all the time. And like you have to tiptoe around that or you can quit and go to Google. So I, I did both. <laughs> Wow. So yeah, like what came next? Like how long were you at Amazon and Google? And then where'd you go from there? One year each. Uh, and then I worked for actually the only company I really liked working for, which is Everlane, which was a clothing startup. I still hang out with those guys. They're here in San Francisco. And that was a big shift for me. It was like, here's a different way of being. What if you liked your coworkers? And uh, what if you, I mean, what if you did something that wasn't like maybe like technically like that interesting, but like expressive or creative or delivered value directly to like a human being? Or where you could actually take the time to show pride of excellence in work, right? Like Amazon and Google, we were just trying to, we were just trying to meet the sprint. You know, we were just trying to clear out every point we could. At Everlane, it was like, if I didn't want to do something, I would just not do it. And like, I knew they couldn't fire me. So we actually could take the time. Was that a smaller? Uh... Oh yeah, it was much. When I joined, it was like 10 people, 10 people total. And like a dev team of like three. So if we wanted to make the website look exactly right, we could do that. And we also genuinely believed that that was the best thing for the business to make a certain thing look and feel exactly the right way. And we would come up with our own priorities for like what we thought was important about the website to work exactly the right way. But when we did, we just do it. And that was very liberating. It was like, you can look at, it's a validation that the engineer, when given enough freedom, has the potential to you know, act as a product owner. Yeah, to actually impact the business. So yeah, to like give a shit about something instead of being like a crank through the sprint log, right? Yeah. 
And I think that that obviously says a lot about you and the team as engineers there, because there there are very few engineers who, who I feel like go that, who like cross that, not just engineers, but designers too, or copywriters or mm-hmm. anyone. Like, like you come in with a certain skill set or trade, but to translate that to product in a person's life that they're going to use to achieve some goal and then how that impacts the business. Like people who understand that that higher level start to get it and start to really add a lot of value. Yeah. And I think actually everyone's capable of that. I mean, I know that sounds a little like self-helpy. Not not that everyone's not capable of that, but it's just it's just rare. I think the, the environment I think is the biggest issue. Like when people change, they change because of their immediate environment. And I think you can change someone who's used to cranking through a sprint or whatever into someone who thinks about what's right pretty quickly if you give them the right set of incentives or if you make them feel good about doing that. And I think that was Everlane's, one of Everlane's strengths actually is that they made the employees feel really good. So, you know, like what you might give up in other areas of employment that you might find valuable, a lot of employees just found like a lot of love for the company, which is very useful for the company. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but it was also nice for the employees too, well, at least some of them, you know. Hmm. So like the culture and the, and like what, any examples of that? I guess what I'm saying is like, if you really like your coworkers and you feel a sense of like pride in your work or whatever, maybe you care less about, you know, accommodations, options, salary. There's a, there's a spectrum here, like a, a value that the company can provide to the employee, which money is just one, culture is one, like there's a bunch. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I, obviously, you're living and working in the Bay Area, but you know, I, I've been running my, my company, my, my business, fully remote team of like 20, 25 people. And That's a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been amazed in the last couple of years how there's such amazing talent out there and they are hungry for flexible work from home situations. Maybe they're like stay at home moms or they're freelancers and they get they get stuff that's like come and go, but they want something a little bit more stable as like a part-time thing with that flexibility. And they're more than capable of being a rock star in your company. But you know, if you offer them that sort of situation, that's just been really incredible to me these, these past couple of years. So for you, like where, where did it go next? Like how did you kind of come into CoderPad? Oh, uh, I mean, I was just, it's one of those, like, it was obvious at the moment stories. I was interviewing a lot of people at Everlane, and I was frustrating the way that it was done. It seemed to be absurd that you would ask someone to write a bit of computer programming code, but not ask them to use a computer to run it in a phone screen interview. I thought that was just silly, so I tried to hack together a thing that could do that. So before CoderPad, like what was like the typical state of the art (laughs) or just the, I mean, just the typical process for an interview process for a developer? Like what did that look like? Uh, The typical process for a developer, for those at home is usually you get cold blasted by a recruiter you've never spoken to in your life on LinkedIn or an email. Uh, You say, what the hell? And you respond. They usually hop on a call with you, the recruiter for 30 minutes or something like that. And then like if they ensure that you're not like a knife murderer, they try to schedule like probably like an hour-long phone screen. From there, it starts to diverge based on like what kind of company you're interviewing for. Google would maybe do like a couple phone screens, but usually most companies will fly you to the onsite if you're remote, whereupon they'll subject you to a four to eight hour uh, series of in-person programming questions. Hmm. So like they're giving you like tests and you have to kind of work it out and build things. Yeah, yeah. They'll give you problems. The, the nature of the problems can vary, but they're usually related to programming in general. The ones on the phone tend to be uh, a narrower scope and more explicable. The ones you get in person tend to be more, or it can be more, not always, but it can be more things like, how would you build Twitter? 
and they just sort of see what you say, whether you have intuition for how one might build Twitter. I don't think it's a very good question, but people ask that. And after all that, the company goes through their own process and writes to an offer letter through the mysterious black box of you know, however it is they crunch that. The state of the art for phone screens before Coderpad came along was all over the place. A lot of people are using this free tool called CollabEdit, which is a way of like synchronizing code in real time. It displays the code kind of nicely and highlights it well. The crazy part is Google was and still is requiring people to write code in Google Docs to really? do a phone screen for Google. Yeah, it's really something. Uh, I've been trying to get them to not do that, but they're very change averse about certain things. <laughs> They've wow. built up a lot of like institutional knowledge about like what is hiring, and they're very careful to make changes to that, maybe rightfully so. But one strange artifact of that is that they use Google Docs, which is basically Microsoft Word in the browser. Yeah, it's not exactly a code editor. It's really not exactly a code editor. <laughs> it's brutal, actually. It's almost insane. Yeah, like we use Google Docs for documenting things. And, no, that makes sense. <laughs> and then occasionally, like we have to drop a piece of code, like this is the embed code that you need to use for this step in the document. But the code never it always causes problems. In the- it never looks right. It's never highlighted. Yeah. yeah, crazy. I mean, you can use a hammer to hit nails it pretty well. But you, I guess if you really want to, you could use it to maybe like wrench something if you if you had to. So you were uh, you were interviewing candidates for potential positions at mm-hmm. at Everlane, and, and so so you're running into this. Like there isn't a way to to see in real time the person you're, you're interviewing, see how they approach a, a programming problem. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. And at the same time, I was interviewing a lot of other companies for fun. Because I like, I like, I went through this phase where I just did a bunch of interviews to get free flights to places around then. So I was doing a lot of these. And it would annoy me as a candidate too. It's like, I want to demonstrate the simple property of like this object or whatever. And there wasn't like a convenient way to do it. I was just like, you have to trust me. Or like, I don't remember exactly how this thing works. I'm just going to like gloss over this part. And the, the hand waviness of it to me was absurd. Because that's not how computers are not hand wavy, right? Computers are actually like completely discreet. And for most things, there's like a yes or no answer. And that we would have to resort to that sort of thing for this very concrete task. Just, it rubbed me the wrong way, aesthetically. And Again, for the non-technical folks, is it kind of like, like you could execute the task, but you're, you're not really able to show your work? I wouldn't put it that way. It's more like writing out a long multiplication problem and then sort of just trusting that you hand wrote out the correct answer at the end instead of also just like using calculator to calculate mm-hmm. the final number. It's the way it would work is like, please write me a program that like prints out the numbers one through 20. And you would write that program. And the interviewer would look at that program with their eyeballs in their human brain and say, that program is right or that program is wrong. But whether that program is right or wrong is a property not of the humans reading it, but of the code itself. Right, it should test it in real time. And the computer is actually fully capable of telling you whether the program prints out the numbers one through 20. And so basically the way it works is you just have this back and forth with, I think there might be a bug on line five as the interviewer where you try to hint them that like you've spotted a bug and they haven't. And the can be like, ah, oh, let me see, let me work it through my head. But like what you would do in real life is you would put little print statements in, you would try to get more information about the problem from the computer. The computer will tell you where the problem with the computer is. But we weren't doing that. We were doing this totally mental abstract. It's more like, I guess, playing chess in your head instead of on the board which you can totally do, but you have to be better at it to do that. Quite a lot better, actually. Yeah, and you're not focusing time on actually talking to the candidate and understanding yeah. if they're the right person or not. Right, there are more important things to do in the interview yep. than this homework checking, right? So, so you're frustrated with this problem, and what do you do about it from there? I talked to a couple people, and they pointed me at some projects that might work. 
And I hacked together a browser-only version that only supported like a few programming languages. Actually, just Ruby in the beginning. And then I showed it to them the next Monday, and I was like, what do you guys think of this? They're like, oh, this is cool. Let's play with it. Then I just started interviewing candidates on it, and it seemed to go totally fine. So I was like, maybe there's a business here. So I spent like a few months uh, rebuilding the thing in a format appropriate for you know basic consumption by other companies and slapped a credit card form on it and then just kind of went from there. So I mean like you're you're working full time at this point. Yeah. For that company. You you build this tool yourself. Like did you build it like in your free time, like separate yep. from the office and everything? Nights and weekends, maybe. I probably cheated a little bit and used some office time, but yeah. Only after the work was done for if there's any lawyers from Everland listening, I absolutely no way right. any company resources to build CoderPad and would never consider doing something like that. Right. I am curious about like how that, that process went. Like you're building this tool on the side. Clearly it's a business idea that you're trying to launch, but you are working full time. And the business idea is something that you will use in your interviewing work at Everlane. So like, how did that balance work? Like, were you kind of transparent about like the fact that this tool is something that you're building on the side or like? I was very transparent, but I was also very lucky in that I had a very good boss at Everlane. And I don't think this would be possible at every company or even advisable, actually. But, you know, you work at a small company, you can read the room, like you probably know what the response is going to be. I mean, if you can do it, then and you want to do it, then I would say do it. But if you work at a bigger company, if I had worked, if I was trying to do this like a Google or something, I would definitely have kept the project under wraps. Yeah, I wouldn't have talked about it. I had maybe mentioned it to a few coworkers I trusted at the company. But the legal team at Google is, is much more proactive. And, you know, they already talked to me about other stuff. I didn't want to cross them again. So, yeah, how paranoid you have to be, I think, is a very situational thing. Cool. So, so you build it. It's working. You show some people that you know. What happens from there? Like, how did you get... Well, how did you know that, okay, it's a pain point for yourself and it's mm-hmm. a solution that you're going to use, but how do you validate that other hiring managers, like technical leads have that same issue. I did it, man. I don't know. Well, what year is this? 2013, probably. I must have been 23 years old. I had no clue. I had a blind, unshakable faith that this was the right thing. I think I had like unconscious evidence that it was the right thing. Like everybody that I talked to was about like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Candidates seem to like it. I, I don't know. I probably talked to some other friends at some other companies who said, yes, yeah, has legs. And I knew the cost of developing it would be low in the beginning. And the worst thing that could happen was that I had spent a few months building something that I found interesting. So it was the right mix of like low downside, high upside for me that made it seem like I actually didn't have to spend a lot of time on validation. And I happened to be correct. It's maybe not the most advisable thing, but I felt like I had a strong intuition that it would work. It didn't seem that specious to me. It wasn't like a maybe people will want to change the behavior in this way. It was more like people are already doing more or less this exact thing, but they're not doing it that great. All I have to do is make it great. And, you know, some percent of people will use it. Not 100% of people and not all of them can afford me, but some percent of people will use it. And I also looked at the math. It's like, I only need to make like $4,000 a month or whatever before taxes to, you know, scrape by in San Francisco. So that's totally doable. What is that? Like, you know, a dozen customers, two dozen customers. I thought the my only goal was to just like be raw and profitable and then I could just quit and do whatever. So it also seemed like a very easy goal within reach because I never wanted to boil the ocean or anything. Yeah. So I, I definitely want to get into pricing and, and everything, but um, what were your first steps to actually get it out there and get your first paying customers? This is going to be unsatisfying, but like the truth is I don't really remember 
I think I emailed some people to introduce me to their bosses. I remember my first paying customer was Udacity, but it wasn't even to hire programmers. It was for one of their classes where they were teaching Java to students. And they're like, can Coderpad help us do that? Because uh, my then girlfriend worked at Udacity, so we had a connect there. I like so went into to get a girlfriend who works at a company and get her to, yeah. Yeah, except, <laughs> I don't know, like that might be, you might end up spending more than uh, you make back. But yeah, and then I went to a room full of tutors and I showed them Coderpad. And I was like, yeah, this will totally be the exact thing that you need for this thing, which is like more or less true, I guess, but. It wasn't even for the core point of Coderpad. It was just a random thing that happened. I remember after that being like, wow, that was actually really easy. Like, if you just like simply explain what you do and how it addresses a problem, people that have a problem will probably buy it. You know? yeah. As long as, I mean, it's tougher if you're in a less, less differentiated product space or if you have you know, like a vaguer problem to address. But in my case, my problem is like very concrete, actually. And the benefit yeah. we provide also is very concrete. So it's not so hard to communicate. So you pass it around to a few folks and, and you kind of like kind of stumble into your first few paying customers. What's the next step from there? Like how did it really start to get some exposure and get people like signing up? We just kept emailing more people. My friend from high school, Darius, signed on as a full-time salesperson. He was part-time for a bit because he thought it'd just be interesting to help like a company that had literally just formed. Uh, and from then on, we had like more concerted efforts to like actively court companies that we would target. And while we were doing that, of course, inbounds were picking up. Like as more candidates and interviewers used CoderPad, more candidates and interviewers became aware of CoderPad. We also had candidates inform interviewers that, hey, you can use this thing called CoderPad and vice versa. So there's a sort of viral aspect to it. It's helped by like, you know, like students will interview like 30 companies like in like a month or something. So there's like, there's high concentrated usage sometimes, which I think helps spread awareness. So a lot of it has been fairly organic. We don't do any marketing. We have no content. There's no blog. That's another thing that I noticed about your site. You're right. There is no blog. It's a very pretty cool website. Like it's showing the demo. That's another thing I wanted to ask you about, but it's very simple. Just a few pages, really. Yeah. One long form sales page on the homepage telling the story and building the case. And then, you know, features, pricing, FAQ, demo page. Yeah. So before this interview, I, I went through the demo. I, I tried it out once and then I couldn't try it out again. Yeah. Get owned. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me about that. Like, like tell me about the, about the, the idea of like putting up a, it's like a live functional demo that you could just start using without registering an account or anything like that. Yeah. Well, it's a trade off, right? Like you could gate it by more stuff and then make it maybe more usable. But like mm -hmm. a lot of people were using CoderPad in incognito tabs, using the demo for real interviews for real companies. Oh, uh, and I got wind of that pretty quickly, but I, I held off for a while before getting the interview to like a time length. And I thought, you know, it's nice that it's free exposure, but at some point I want to bring the crows in and, and make some money off people who are like getting free power. Because the, the expectation for products like this is that they're free. CoderPad is the first like totally only phone. Yeah, especially when you're selling to developers, they could, they'll easily get, get those. Little but you, you need to build urgency in a company and there's no urgency if like their need is perfectly met by my company for free, you know, forever. So there obviously had to come a time where that had to go away. And that wasn't even until like not that long ago, like maybe a year or two. For the longest time, we just had a totally abusable free demo. Yeah, well, I mean, you're still providing the ability to get in there and use the thing before even signing up for like a trial. Yeah, I have no idea if that's a good idea or not. If you're asking me whether that's like a special business insight or not, the truth is that's just how I would want it as a consumer. Like everything about CoderPad is mostly built on like my sense of aesthetics. Essentially, I'm not a terribly savvy business owner, but 
That is what I would want. If I was a developer buying this tool, I would want to be able to just jump into the session and even invite someone else to it to test that it really is real time without needing to fuck around with you know, sign up forms or credit cards or whatever. Yeah. It might not be the best thing. It might be better to like account gate it or even credit card gate it, but I like it. I think it makes a lot of sense, especially for a tool like this. To me, the whole, not that I'm necessarily a target user, but the whole value is in the experience of how seamless it is to work and see the code and see, you know, see the experience. And like the, the sooner you can get a person into it. Oh yeah. I mean, again, I'm not the savviest business owner, but like to play the other side here and say like, that's definitely true, but there's also a lot of other things that are true. Right. And one other thing about Cutterpad that's true is that it is a B2B enterprise sales company. Right. Right. Well, that's what I want to dig, dig into here. I mean, with pricing, like, okay, starting at 50, then it goes you're going up to like, what, 750 a month, and then there's an enterprise level. Yep. So this is clearly, obviously, it's a tool for hiring, and it's a tool for companies who are hiring rapidly and, and lots of people. So a friend of yours joined and helped with sales. Like, What were your kind of first steps in, in learning how to sell to companies who are growing at that pace? My real, uh, that was a lot of ideas, but only one question. So I'll answer the question, but if you want, we can come back to the ideas. Uh, my real first step was, uh, have you heard of Steli FC? Yeah. Yeah. Steli FC was hosting like an in-person like seminar on like introduction to sales for like technical founders, for YC founders. I'm not a YC founder, but I just snuck in. And it was great. Actually, he said a lot of things that totally made sense to me. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway is that like sales can just be like talking to people. You just have to keep a couple of things in mind. Like you want to find things out about their situation. You want to paint exactly the right picture of like how you will help their situation. And then you want to be, you know, persistent and about closing and aggressive about it and like to not be afraid to ask for more money or for a faster close or for whatever it is that you need because it's not unreasonable to ask for those things. So a lot of it was just getting the mindset and then me and Darius like psyching each other up to, you know, raise prices, to go after more companies, to, you know, like to not undercut ourselves. There's this tendency of people who starting out to like undercut themselves or say, to start with the negatives about their product and be like, oh, we don't do that yet. Sorry, I know we're really sorry. We, we don't, we can't do like this persistent file thing for you just yet. But like, you know, we really want to and like we hope that you'll consider us even still. No, don't, you, don't, you don't say any of that shit. You say like, you have this problem. We have the perfect solution for it. It is better than any other solution out there. And that's why we're the most expensive. And we deserve to be the most expensive and you will be the happiest if you buy the best product. Yeah. You say that. I mean, you don't say those words, but like those are the ideas. And like getting over, getting over yourself and just saying those words, I think this, this can be hard for a lot of people. But for me, it wasn't that hard. I mean, I'm a crazy person already. So it's not, I didn't think of it as acting or lying or anything. I thought it was just like, this is the truth. We're just being more aggressive about saying it. So I noticed that the pricing tiers are basically like personal, one user account. So it's like you're, you're tiering based on number of user accounts and number of interviews per month. We're still playing with that, but the, the, the biggest real gate is actually number of interviews per month in terms of what practically people run into. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I was looking at the tier, they're like 120 interviews a month. They're obviously hiring a lot of people, but they could do many interviews just to fill one position. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interview to close rate uh, varies wildly. But I mean, I think you should expect to see between, you know, six to 10 phone screens per yeah. full-time engineer closed. So when you're, when you're charging, you know, several hundred dollars a month and up. So is it true that, that most of that type of customer, like business customer needs to talk to somebody before they can really get on board with this sort of thing? Or are you getting a lot of customers who are using the demo, trying it out? signing up, buying? You know, that's, that's actually a difficult question to answer because I no longer have super direct involvement with like every literal on the ground deal. So 
barring me knowing more about that, I'd say coin flip probably like 50-50. Some people definitely do need to talk to people, even for small plan purchases. But some people don't. Some people have just signed up for the most expensive tier, like without speaking to any of us. Yeah. So it's definitely happened. I, I don't know what the frequency is super well. You know, I'm, I'm also curious about this enterprise level. So many SaaS have, you know, B2B SaaS have this like, you know, price, 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 and then enterprise call us. Yes. Well, it's, it varies. What is that for you guys? Like, what does that look like? It looks like a lot of money, Brian. <laughs> I mean, like really, like, like how many deals are falling into that enterprise bucket and what is the process for, for doing a deal in that? A minority, of course, but they represent a lot of value, a lot of value. And the process for them is much more involved, of course, right? Sometimes a deal in the enterprise category can take a year to close, right? And a lot of that will be building rapport internally, building the case for it, and moving through all the hoops that need to be jumped through. Like if, need, if they want to do an audit, if they want to like have a special thing built for them or not, uh, if they want, you know, like direct integration with their like uh, user directory and all that. So... I don't know. Like it's, it's more or less classical enterprise sales. I guess I don't necessarily understand exactly what you're curious about. Well, I mean, it's just it's something that we see a lot. And I think by design that it's pretty vague, like what's behind the contact us. Oh, yes. Actually, that is something we're probably going to change. I mean, we'll probably list a minimum price for enterprise to set expectations. And we might be more explicit about what's going in there. But well, I mean, the minimum, you could assume it's, it's higher than your highest visible tier there. Yeah. Right. But how much higher is actually important in terms of like indicating that like this is a serious thing, like don't waste your time if you email this, right? Like, right. Do you guys spend a lot of time like qualifying the, those leads? Uh, it's not so much the time, it's the psychological state of the customer, I would say. Like, it's one thing to write an email to a mysterious enterprise form. It's another to do so knowing at minimum, what you should expect to pay, right? It puts you in the mind of like, you're thinking about that number already. Whereas opposed to, we have a long conversation at the end, I tell you a price, right? And now it's a surprise and you react to it with like, however people respond to being surprised with large numbers, which is, I'll tell you universally, not well. Yeah. So front loading some of the emotion there, I think is valuable. And we'll probably ship that, I don't know, this month or something. I couldn't agree more though. I mean, on my sites, it's all the prices are right there, but right ahead of the, right next to the consultation form, you know, and then even once they fill out that form, they're seeing a video, which then goes through the pricing and everything. And I want them to see all that before I even get on the call with them. Having the buyer be totally educated before you enter the, a price negotiation, I think is very valuable. And we've pushed it more and more. Like this used to be vaguer. If you're seeing my pricing page right now, you should have seen it like three years ago. Like, it's crazy. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing at the beginning, but, and we're slowly kind of refining it as we go. So I want to talk more about, about your team. I mean, only four of you, like what are the roles there? Like developers, customer service? It's, I don't know, this will be super interesting to you, but yeah, we have two developers that work on whatever I tell them to work on. We have like one generalist who works on sales writing copy or emailing people, you know, or figuring out how to buy company health insurance, like whatever it is. And then you have me, I guess I go on random podcasts and kind of, you know, just exist now. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I have friends who run SaaS who are in the same revenue ballpark and more and profitability and growth and scaling the team and servers and, and all that gets out of hand. Like how have you been able to keep the, like it's, it sounds like the customer support load has, has been low. The, even the developer team has been pretty small for you guys, like at this level. I mean, I guess you noticed it yourself, right? Like CoderPad doesn't have that many pages on its website because there aren't that many. Like we don't do that much. We do what I think of is exactly the right thing and hopefully no more. 
right? Uh, so we've narrowed our scope. We've focused on delivering value to customers who are willing to pay for it. The more you charge, the more sophisticated buyers you get, and they have fewer annoyances to deal with. The biggest customers are almost always the best ones, actually. It's the small customers who tend to be annoying. And we are blessed with many good customers, I would say. And I don't know, we do a good job, I think, of setting expectations. Like, this is what you're going to get. It's not going to change that much. It'll get better, but it's not going to... We're not going to break your workflow, right? Like if you know how to use CoderPad like a year ago, you'll know how to use it today. So like we don't store a lot of personal information, right? We don't host your website. So like the only thing we do is we do conduct interviews for you. And if, we, if the website goes down, it's really bad because you can't do any interviews. But those are usually the only two states we can be in. Like everything is up and working fine or you can't do any of your interviews. There's usually not some other problem that requires like a lot of, you know, customer service touch. And people write us to ask us questions, certainly, like, do you do this? We say, like, yes or no. But, like, otherwise, like, I think our burden is, is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I like, one thing I noticed, like, right on the website on the bottom, there are, like, three links for getting started for interviewers, recruiters, and candidates. Yeah. So it's like, if, if you're one of those three people, you have your guide right there. Just go to that one page. It's, yeah. As far as I could tell, I mean, that those are the only three like knowledge base, like documentation pages you have. Like, Yeah, we're thinking, we're probably going to expand that a bit, but yeah, it's very ad hoc right now. Yeah, I'm sure those three pages right there probably answer, you know, a hundred other questions that would normally come into a, a help desk software, you know? Yeah, people don't have that many different questions. People always ask the same things. Like, how do I do like, this basic thing or whatever? It's like you click the button that says the thing you want to do, but come on. Yeah. And you have a technical customer base too, which I'm sure helps. Yeah, our customers tend to be uh, probably savvier than like, you know, if you're doing like small, medium business across like all of America, like selling to restaurants or something, I think you'd have a hell of a time. But this is like a pretty specific segment and we use the same language to describe things. So we have a shared vocabulary more or less. So I used to own a business that, that sold to restaurants and yeah. That, oh, I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> Luckily, I'm not in that business anymore. But <laughs> so uh, My roommate used to work for a, a company that was doing point of sale software and holy yeah, shit. Holy like, shit is right. I would not want that business. Like, um, so, I mean, here we are. We're, we're recording this early 2018. What's happening this year at CoderPad? What's your outlook for the year? What, what are you working on next? Feature-wise, more of the same. Like I said, Clutterbridge just continues to iterate and develop like very simple features on top of a very simple feature set. So hopefully we'll allow you to have more in-depth programming environments. Right now, Clutterbridge tends to skew towards a single file interface for programming. But some programming questions are not easily broken into, or easily uh, solved in just like one file. So being able to have multi-files, to be able to like have the interviewer load static files ahead of time for the candidate to play with. Uh, just have a more high fidelity experience in general is something we're, we're striving towards. It's going to take a while. Are you guys getting uh, like requests and, and like just research from your existing customer base at this point that that's kind of pointing you? Yeah, but, I mean, that's been a persistent request for a long time since inception, essentially. That, like Clutterpad should be more persistent and less sort of ephemeral with the way it is now. And we've held off from that because making things non-ephemeral makes, you know, it makes the architecture of the website much harder to manage. So we've put that off just for our own sanity's sake, but I think it is a lot of value to a customer to be able to do more advanced things on platform. And we're just pushing in that direction. I'll try to integrate with more tools in the ecosystem, like you know HR tools, scheduling, applicant tracking systems, that sort of thing. Um, as far as like goals uh, for like performance of the company, I have none. It's nice when the numbers go up, and if they keep going up, I'm happy. Like that's all there. 
I don't really care. Yeah. Like I made enough money already. Cool. Well, awesome, Vincent. Thank you for uh, doing this. It's a really interesting product. Really good story. We're going to get all this stuff linked up in the show notes. Of course, that's at coderpad.io. Anywhere else people can connect with you? You can follow me on Twitter or go to my website. My website's vincentwoowoo.com. My Twitter is uh, Fulligan, F-U-L-L-I-G-I-N. I'm sure you can throw a link to the thing. Cool. Yeah, we'll have yeah. it all linked up. Awesome, Vincent. Thanks for doing it. Great. It was nice talking to you, Brian. All right. See All right, now before we wrap up, let me ask you, what'd you think of this one? Was it good? You learned something? Are there any other topics you'd like to hear me cover on this pod? Well, let me know. No, I mean, really, like, let me know. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you. I'll read every single one. I try to reply to everyone. What's that? Oh, you're not on my list yet. Okay, well, head over to my site, productizepodcast.com. You can get on my email newsletter that way. I'll send you, you know, new episodes and all the show notes, but I'll also send you my newsletter where I share all sorts of articles and other insights on entrepreneurship, building products, productized services, software, SaaS, and other cool stuff there. So yeah, check that out over at productizepodcast.com. And of course, if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate it if you could head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, or at least just five stars. You don't even have to leave a review if you don't want to, but that would really go a long way to helping other folks like us find this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'll talk to you on the next one. Mm-hmm.